All right, so Exodus chapter 23, we're going to look at the three feasts today, starting with the unleavened bread. Of course, I started getting into this, and I thought, oh, I can cover all three feasts. There's no way in the world. Now, in Exodus here, it's very simple. They have listed uh, the three major feasts. It's very general, really no specifics given. Uh, you know, one of those reasons is, is because uh, he's just giving them the, the kind of the skeleton of the law during this time. But if you look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you see a lot more things being exposed about the feast and so forth. And so we'll look a little bit at that today. So I am going to go further, deeper into this than just what we see in our text. And so I thought it was a good opportunity for us to understand what these feasts are. And I think that's going to help you because these are the major feasts of the scripture in the Old Testament. So if you can get your head around these seven feasts that they're talking about, three here, but three that are divided into seven and understand kind of what they're about. It'll really give you a good, good uh, push forward in your own Bible study as well. So when you, when you come to those texts, you'll understand it. And so uh, chapter 23, verse number 14, I'm going to read this. It says, Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month Abib, for in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, and the feast of thy labors, or the first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering. So there we have those three, which is in the end of the year. When thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field, three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Neither shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. The first of the first fruits of thy land, thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. All right, so let's look at this number one. The, I'm going to look at some introductory, introductory con- comments here about the three feasts. Uh, letter A, Israel was commanded to keep three feasts every year perpetually. And so this is something they were supposed to constantly do. And why do you, why do, you do this? Well, why, what's this all about? Are you actually accomplishing something? Well, most of all, what it is, it's remembering. And I was thinking about that today. You know how, how much we have to remember? You know, if we wouldn't have things to remember, you know how easy it would be for us just to simply backslide? If we didn't have those things before us from the Lord to remember, if we didn't have constant church services, if we didn't have, uh, you know, this prodding to read our Bible, this prodding to pray, this prodding to, for the Lord's Supper and all these different things, you know, you know how easy it would be just to slip over into this world's mentality and just kind of coast with the current? See, you need to remember. And so the Lord set up these feasts throughout the year to keep their minds focused on the real thing, on the real purpose of life. Amen? And so number one, uh, the location of the feast would be at Jerusalem. Now the problem is, and this is why he's not giving a lot of details right now, they're not in Jerusalem, <laughs> you know? Uh, this is where they, uh, they're actually in the wilderness. And so this is an important thing to consider as he's giving them this, 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 uh, these details here. They're not doing these things until they get into the promised land. So what he's doing is preparing them for the will of God, preparing them to cross over and do what God wants them to do, 
We see that in John 4, verse 19. Remember when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Then she said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. For the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so basically what you have here with the Samaritans is they had a different style of worship. Remember when Jeroboam and the ten tribes split off the two tribes? And how that Jeroboam wouldn't allow the people to go back to Jerusalem for these three feasts that they were supposed to attend? And what he did instead is he set up two golden calves. Then they began to worship those in place of worshiping God in Jerusalem like they were commanded to. And so when she asked, well, they say we're supposed to do it in Jerusalem because I could see the attitude here, <laughs> you know. Oh, well, you said I'm supposed to be there. You know how it is. And you know what? Jesus said to her, hey, you don't even know what you're worshiping. You don't have a clue. See, they were just setting something up just for the sake of saying we're worshiping God. But their, the methods were of no concern to them. <laughs> you know, we're living in a day and age where the methods of worship are not necessarily concerned to God's people because they think that as long as it's getting the results I'm looking for. And what are the results? Well, today the result is just that I feel good. <laughs> you know how many people I've had come up to me and says, oh, you know, this, this Christian rock music, it just really speaks to my heart. It makes me feel good. That's got to be of God. So the result <clears throat> justified their means. It justified their methods. <clears throat> But Jesus set her straight here. He says, you don't even know what you're worshiping. Because if you did, you would do it the way that God asked you to do it. <laughs> and you're not, you see. And so they should have been worshiping in Jerusalem. That was God's plan from the start. And the thing is, they set up a quasi type of worship. And that all, I mean, it continued on for hundreds of years in, in the Samaria there until they actually got taken into captivity. And then after that, uh, of course, some of them, they, they really mixed with the, the, the Syrians and so forth. And that's when Samaria came into being and which brought this woman onto, into play here. And so number two, all males were required to appear. Exodus 23, 17, three times in the year, all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. And so the males were supposed to be there. And I'm sure the ladies came too, or maybe not all of them. But what was commanded were the males. The males had to be at the worship. Isn't that amazing? That's a whole lot different than today. Is this too quiet? Is that better? <laughs> okay. Ben says it had to come up. It's got to go up. Amen. All right, anyways, the males. And I thought about this. Why the males? Well... It was always the males that God had focused on, even from the firstborn and so forth and on and on. Even in the plague, it was the firstborn son that was going to die, uh, you know, at the Passover there that didn't have the blood upon the door. And I think part of that is, is referring to the fact that the man is responsible. We're the, we're the, we're the head of the, the home. Uh, and that is a different mentality than today. 
And I tell you this, uh, I mean, most of us, when we go door to door, it's usually the wife we're talking to. And the man just usually kind of skulks off in the back somewhere, you know. I'm not the spiritual one, she is. Well, you're the one that's supposed to lead the worship of your home. You're the one that's supposed to be the head of your home. And see, God commanded the males to come. We're the leaders. We're supposed to lead them in the right direction. Amen. But yet, you know, ladies many times do have that spiritual uh, connection as such. They're more emotionally touched to the Lord. They, they, they have that. Uh, men are more logical. Men are more action. Men are more, let's do this and get this done. And so it takes work for us to become the leaders of our home. And it takes the wise of the home to help the men lead the home. I mean, if you're going to take it over, chances are your husband's just going to let you. Which shouldn't be, but that's what's going to happen many times. That's what happens in the world. And so you ought not let that. You ought to just, uh, sometimes ladies, what you ought to do is sit in your car until your husband opens the door. And you know, the thing is, he would probably start opening the door for you, but you know what, before he'd get there, you'd already be halfway across the block. You understand? Remember one time there was, I forget who it was, one of the ladies at the church, <laughs> the husband, you know, usually he did that, and he didn't do it the one day, and he was kind of walking away, and, and then all of a sudden he noticed that his wife was still sitting in the car. She was waiting for him to come open the door. <laughs> you know, there's things that you could do to help your husband learn how to lead properly. Wouldn't that be nice if we'd be able to do that for our wives, and then our sons would pick that up? Because the, the ladies are allowing us to do that. But if you only allow them to do once every you know, 50 times, that's not going to stick. You've got to continue. Amen. And require that. You know, that'll help males take their, their responsibility in leading. And so males were held accountable for their families. Males ought to be the ones to lead their family to the church. It ought not be the wife that wakes everybody up and oh, we got to go to the church and the husband lollygagging around like somehow, well, I don't know if I want to go. I mean, get over yourself, man. You're going to meet God for your family. You will face him eye to eye. And he's going to say, what was that about? Why did you not take the leadership of your home? Why did you put all that pressure on your wife when you should have taken it? Amen? I'll tell you, that's going to be a sobering day when we meet the Lord, you know? So let her be. Anyways, let's move on from that. Amen, men? <laughs> let her be. The three feasts would coincide with the harvest season. And so this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, I have a, a chart here. And so this is the calendar within Israel. Of course, they have the, the regular 12 months as, as we do. But of course, their year starts on a different year. We'll look at that in a little bit. But notice that there's the spring feasts, and those three feasts happen during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And then you've got this one feast that's kind of set, set aside by itself in Savan, right on top there, and that's the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. Now, how, how long is a week? Seven. It doesn't mean seven years. It doesn't mean this. It just means a set of seven. We know that that means days in this context because we're dealing within a calendar year, all right? So what we have there is 49 days after the first fruits, you have this Feast of Weeks. And on the 50th day, on that high Sabbath day, that was called Pentecost. And Penta means 50, all right? And so that's when Pentecost took place. And so after that, there's a long period of, of work in summer and harvest. And then you had the fall feasts, and that would be the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
but it would include three other ones. It would be the trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, those three in one. And each one of these have specific meaning in relation to Christ and within the Christian life. And so they're very important for us to understand. So when a lot of people tell us, oh yeah, you know, we got to pray that the Holy Ghost comes down, <laughs> folks, the, the, the disciples didn't bring the Holy Ghost down on the day of Pentecost. That was pre-planned. <laughs> in fact, Jesus just told them this, go tarry ye in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. That means this is going to happen whether you're ready or not. And there were some disciples, I'm sure, that weren't ready. There were some people that wouldn't have been up in the room. Maybe they should have been there, whatever it is. All I know is this, that these disciples, they, were, they didn't bring the baptism of the Spirit down. But what they did is they brought the filling of the Spirit into their life by being surrendered. <laughs> but the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit are two different things. You don't pray for baptism of the Spirit. That's a one-time event that took place on Pentecost that empowered the church for the harvest. Amen? That's what Pentecost is all about. And so it's not that we go find an upper room and try to pray down the Holy Spirit of God. Folks, if you're saved, he's already inside of you. He doesn't need to come from heaven down. He needs to just to find more space inside of you to occupy. It's called being filled. Amen? It's kind of like being in the house and he's sitting in your porch and he's been there for three years. He's saying, could you please give me a little more room here? But he doesn't just twist your arm. He doesn't just force his way into your life. He wants you to consecrate yourself to the Lord and give him your kitchen and give him your bedroom and give him your living room and give him the basement and give him the closets and all these different things in your life. That's when you know you're filled with the Spirit. So that day, these disciples were waiting for the promise of the Father, which was the baptism of the Spirit, which Jesus Christ spoke about. He says, not many days hence... You shall be baptized, amen. So it's not something they brought down. It was a promise from the Father. But what was upon them, the responsibility that the individual had was the fact that they each individually needed to choose whether God was going to use me because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is he going to fill my life? Am I going to let him use me that day when he comes and from that day forward? Same decision you and I face every day, amen. That's the Pentecost. And then you have the tabernacles. This, of course, is the end of the, uh, of the harvest year. And it's interesting because they really have two new years with Israel. And many times it's the same way with us. We may have a, a January 1st is our new years, but then we have sometimes a fiscal new year. <laughs> and then maybe July or halfway through the year. That's what they had. They had a, a new year that started with a Passover and then they had a second new year on the last day of the tabernacle feast. And so that's kind of the way the calendar worked. And then it would just re recycle that over and over and over again. All right. And so it was very important to, to get that because it's very, it, it teaches us a lot about how the Lord is working with mankind and working with believers today. All right. So I just wanted you to see that. So it coincides with the harvest. The first fruits... The first harvest, the wheat was harvested by Pentecost. After that, most of the harvest was like fruits and different things like that and figs, and those were the later harvests, all right? But it would all be harvesting 
up till the Feast of the Tabernacle. All right, number one. The feasts were to be observed after Israel entered the Promised Land. And you see that in Leviticus 23.10. To speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. So I have no doubt that there was probably a time where they practiced the Passover and things like that, but they couldn't observe the feasts. Why? They had no harvest. <laughs> Amen. There was no harvest until they got into the promised land. They didn't start planting seeds until they got into the, har- the promised land. So there's no harvest to give to the Lord as an offering. And so really this whole thing is null and void until they cross over. So he's preparing them. Now what does that teach us? Well, number two, there was no fruit produced in the wilderness. No fruit produced in the wilderness, Christian. That's for us today. If we're wandering in the wilderness, there's no fruit from our life. And the only time we can bear forth fruit for the Lord is when we enter into the promised land, into the will of God for our lives. You know, sometimes we fool ourselves. And I've seen people that were blatantly wandering in the wilderness talking about serving God and producing and so forth, yet there's no fruit. Folks, let's not fool ourselves. (laughs) We have to be submitted to the will of God for our life in order to bear forth any fruit unto the Lord because the fruit has nothing to do with what you can produce. It has to do with what Christ produces through you. (laughs) Amen? And if I'm living in a faithless life, how can I ever have God use me in the first place? In Romans chapter 6, Verse 20, it says this, For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You see, 40 years they wandered. What was the end of their life? What were they waiting for? Death. There was nothing better for them to wait for than to die off. The kids were waiting to enter into the will of God. The parents drew them into the wilderness because of their faithless life. It goes on to say, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So basically it's like this. If we're not submitting ourselves to become a servant of our Lord, there is no fruit unto holiness in our life. And that's what he's trying to teach them here. He's saying, I'm telling you this when you go into the land. <laughs> but until then, there's no fruit. There's no harvest. There's nothing that you can bring before me to please me until you go into the promised land by faith. And they had to die to themselves. Remember the first time? They were too afraid. They kept backing out, <laughs> you know, And then the second time they went there, they finally said, you know what, it doesn't matter what it looks like, we're going across. And they went and they set up the stones in Gilgal to be a memorial to the rolling away of the reproach that they carried with them because of Egypt, because of the lack of faith in God. Amen? In other words, they're saying, I'm done with this life of faithlessness. I'm done with this life of not trusting God with my future. I'm going to give myself to him and follow his will for my life. 
And that's what it meant when they walked through the Jordan. Amen? And I believe that is when a person should, that should have been when you got scripturally baptized. I think a lot of people getting scripturally baptized, they they don't even mean it. (laughs) That's why sometimes I have no problem re-baptizing somebody. (laughs) Because the one baptism in Hebrews 4 or 5 has nothing to do with water. It has to do with that time that you're placed into Christ, buried with him, and risen with him at salvation. There's only one time that happened. It cannot be repeated. (laughs) Amen. But the water baptism... That's not something you have to be concerned about as far as one time. In fact, sometimes I've had to do two baptisms. Why? Because the first one associated with the wrong message. The first one associated with the wrong Christ, some of them. I remember I had an older fellow. He was baptized by a guy he respected a lot, but he was a JW. And I told this fellow, I says, you know, I can't, I can't accept that baptism for our membership. And he got mad as a hornet. Boy, he stormed out and that was it. I never saw him again. <laughs> But you know, and no matter how, this is what I've noticed, no matter how nice I try to be, I'm just kind of just walking on eggshells. I'm just kind of like putting it in a way that, you know, coming in at a very gentle way, it doesn't really matter because they're already got that conviction in them. They're already got the anger waiting to lash. A couple of times that's happened to me. And I just knew it, man, if I tell them this, I wonder how they're going to (laughs) respond. Another uh, nice couple, I I love the people, but they were off on their doctrine. They came from a church that believed they could lose their salvation. And I'll tell you something, in the conversation that I was having with them, they began telling me about their son that was away from the Lord, and they thought, well, he lost his salvation. They were telling me that while we're actually talking about them joining the church. And so, so they gave me all the proof that they were baptized. They had pictures, they had a certificate, and they had the pictures of the pastor and the name of the church and more evidence than the courtroom would, courtroom would want, you know. But I had to say no. Because that baptism identified them with a the wrong faith. You understand that one Lord, one faith, one baptism. They're connected. Your one baptism into Christ relates to the faith that you believed. And the faith that you believe reveals the Lord that you believe. And when you're getting baptized in the name of, (laughs) it's in his authority. You understand that? And I know today it doesn't mean anything to people. They just say, oh, you're just being all fuddy. No, I'm not. I'm standing for something. I'm standing for something. And if I wouldn't, this this church become as mamby-pamby as other churches have become. And everybody and uh, whoever will become a member and you'll lose the effectiveness of God in this assembly. You understand? And so I believe it's important. So many times, I remember I had one guy that came from a, a church there, a high German church, and uh, he, he got convinced that he couldn't lose his salvation. But the problem is his church, where he was baptized, believed that. <laughs> And so he just wanted to nicely leave that church and come to ours. I give him all, I guess, a way to go. Praise the Lord. But you know what? He thought it was so important that that church just let him go nicely. And so he went through everything he had to do with them. And I says, you know something? You don't have to worry about that because they're not legitimate. Because they've already ruined their, their testimony. 
They've already walked away from the authority of Christ when they walked away from the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. You don't got to get their stamp of approval. Amen. Now we, whoa, preacher, hey, I would say it to their face. But he was trying to do the right thing, and I give him all the credit for wanting to do that. And so he goes to the preachers and he says, hey, you know, I, I just want to let you know I'm pulling my membership. And they wouldn't let it go. Why? 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 Now they knew he was probably coming to the Baptist church where we were at. They were Baptists too, by the way. They kept pushing and pushing. Finally he says, well, I've just come to the conclusion from the scripture that you cannot lose your salvation. So they just said, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to have a church meeting. Why don't you come? We'll let everybody know. And guess what happened? He came to that meeting. He stood up and they brought discipline against him in the very church and they never gave him any inkling that that was going to happen. (laughs) Blew him right out of the water. I said, now you see why they wouldn't take our baptism. We wouldn't take their baptism (laughs) because it's different faiths. But they're Baptists. doesn't matter what you call yourself. Your name doesn't reveal your doctrine, necessarily. It should, maybe, but it doesn't. (laughs) Sometimes there's a false ingredient list on the can. Amen? But folks, it's very important that we don't mess with the gospel. And so when we teach somebody about baptism, we teach that that authority has to come from a church that has a proper faith. That's why even within our statement of faith, we talk about churches of like faith. With the Lord's Supper and communion, they, if you're doing a close communion, it has to be like faith. But we're not living that anymore today in the world that we live in. There's Baptist church, it just doesn't matter. doesn't matter. We don't want to draw lines. It just makes you look too fuddy-duddy. <laughs> I'm sorry, you just have to. If you want to honor the Lord, you have to. He does it. Amen. And we have to do it as well. And so... Anyways, I don't know where I got off on that, but anyways, let's go out and see. The three feasts reveal three aspects of Jesus Christ. Remember that everything in the Old Testament somehow links back to Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.16, he says, let no, man, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And so you know this, whatever you're given in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is there. The Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, Jesus Christ is there. The Feast of Pentecost, Jesus Christ is there. The Tabernacles, it's all about Jesus. That's all we know. And so one, number one, the first, the Unleavened Bread is Christ saving mankind from sin. It's very simple. We don't, we don't have to, you know, this is what a lot of people do. They go into the Bible and they think they've got to come up with this deeper truth that no man knows, <laughs> you know. No, let's, let's start with the simple. And it may go deeper than this, but I think this is a very simple statement that really brings into being what the unleavened bread is all about. The removal of sin. The removal of sin. He came to take away the sin of the world, saving us from sin. Number two, The Pentecost is Christ empowering the church for the harvest. So it's empowering the church, the baptism of the Spirit. Number three, Christ's return to gather his people into his kingdom, the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
And it's interesting, during the millennial reign, there's only one feast that they will uh, observe for that thousand years, the Feast of the Tabernacles. No more Passover, no more unleavened bread, no more Pentecost, only the Feast of Tabernacles. And everybody on the earth is required to come to Jerusalem once a year to observe the Feast of the Tabernacles in the thousand-year reign. Why? Because it's the only one not yet completely fulfilled. Amen? Where the tabernacle of God is going to come and dwell among men. And so, memory, keeping in, remi- in memory, right? And we know that within the thousand-year reign, we still got a whole bunch of people that are lost. And they'll be born and have to be saved. You think that'd be pretty easy if Jesus would be ruling? You'd think so. But after a thousand years, they'll still rebel against him. You know, crazy. Number two, that shows you just how great of a privilege we have in this dispensation of time to follow the Lord by faith. When there's people in the millennial reign that will see him and won't follow him. And if you will follow him by faith in this dispensation, can you imagine how you please God? By faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. Amen? So the seven feasts. So Exodus reveals the three main feast events, but within these three, there would be seven holy convocations or feasts, and each one of these would be called a feast. And I'm going to show you a picture here. I don't know if you can see that. Um, You can see the seven there. Um, And we looked at it before as well. But let us read the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a sacrifice of Christ that included the Passover and the unleavened bread. Now we know that the Feast of the first fruits is within the time period of the unleavened bread. But in all reality, the first fruits is tied to Pentecost because it's the Feast of Weeks. It begins with first fruits, ends with Pentecost. So it's 50 days that pass by. Amen? So you could have it within the Feast of Unleavened Bread and saying, okay, within the calendar time of that week, the Feast of the first fruits took place. But I just chose just for the sake of showing you this truth, to put it within the next category, the Feast of Weeks, the Spirit of Christ. So there's the first fruits way back there in the week of the unleavened bread, and then you have Pentecost 50 days later. All right? And this takes in that whole 49 days, this whole time of the harvest until Pentecost. All right? And then we have the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is talking about the return of Christ, you have the trumpets, and then you have the Day of the Atonement. This is referring to Israel. This is very much referring to the time where Israel is going to get right with God, and then the Feast of the Tabernacles is going to be the final feast that will be observed for a thousand years. So number three, understanding the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So verse 15 of chapter 23, it says, Thou shalt keep the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee, in the time appointed of the month Abib, or the month Nisan. So when you see those two, they're actually talking about the same month. For in it thou camest out uh, from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And so I want to show you this graph as well. I don't know if you can pull that up there, or if I'm pulling it up. There we are. So the true biblical calendar for Passion Week. All right. So what you have there, Jesus Christ, the 14th of Nisan, 
is when Jesus Christ was crucified. By 6 p.m. that evening, he was already taken off off the cross and placed into the grave because the next day would be the Sabbath of unleavened bread. That would be a high Sabbath. That's what it was called. So the Thursday would be a Sabbath day, not the Saturday. Amen. That's why I say those that are Sabbath keepers, are they keeping that one? <laughs> you know, if you're going to keep Sabbath, he's got to keep them all. Amen. But it's a high Sabbath that marked the beginning of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The day before that was actually a time of preparation for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. What's the preparation? Well, you got to get all the yeast out of your house. <laughs> you know, basically got to get the yeast out of the land. They don't want it anywhere. And so he's saying, get rid of all the leaven out of all the homes of Israel. For that week. All right, that's important. And then we have Friday, of course, not crucified on a Friday. Jesus did not die on Good Friday, by the way. It was on the Wednesday. And then you had Saturday. uh, That is the Sabbath of the Passover. So that is your normal Saturday Sabbath. And then you have the next week, which is the Sunday. That's where the Feast of the First Fruits would take place because it's in relation to the resurrection. All right? the first fruits of the resurrection. And so, and notice that the Saturday before on top there is Palm, Palm Sunday, Palm Sabbath, all right? And so, uh, what else do I need you to see from that? So that, that tells you three days and three nights fits perfectly within that timetable and so forth. So we know that Tuesday evening, that's when Jesus had the Lord's Supper with his disciples because that was on the same day he was crucified because their day started at 6 p.m. So Tuesday after 6 p.m., which was the 14th of Nisan, Jesus had the Passover with his disciples. Then he went out into the Mount of Olives. There he was arrested. He was brought into uh, the high priest and so forth. And that happened throughout the day on Wednesday until the morning, until uh, he was crucified. I think it was the, the ninth hour. I forget exactly right now. And then he was on the cross and the sky went dark for the, the span of three hours, I believe. And then before six o'clock hit on the Wednesday, they had already taken him off because it wasn't lawful that he would have been on the cross during the high Sabbath day. So he had to be off of the cross. All right. And Joseph of Arimathea, if you'd go there, you would see the place of the skull where, where the crucifixion happened. And right next to it is a beautiful garden with a tomb there. And so I believe that Joseph of Arimathea bought that tomb, whether it was for himself or whatever. I don't know. We don't have that. We know Isaiah says that he made his, his grave with the rich. And so we know that Joseph was a rich man. He bought this. He was waiting for the time that Jesus would die on the cross. And the moment he died, he went and begged Pilate to give him the body so he could put it in this nice, little, this nice tomb, which was just only a couple hundred feet away from the, where he died. In a beautiful garden. It's beautiful now. I don't know exactly what it was then. You know, it's interesting on that tomb... You can see a big crack along that whole rock wall. It was kind of a, in the side of a mountain. And they said the only way that could have happened is an earthquake. And you can still see it today. It's amazing. And so anyways, the, when we're talking about unleavened bread, we're talking about this flat bread. When we usually have a um, uh, Lord's Supper, we usually bake it ourselves. But it's without leaven. We don't have yeast in there whatsoever. 
just the same way as, we would, as they did it with the Old Testament that passes over because it's the same God. Same God that we're still uh, celebrating that sinless sacrifice and also the sin that was taken away from the world. Amen? When he died on the cross. All right. So let's move on quickly here. Um, Yeah, we'll do this. Letter A. So, I thought it would be important for us to touch on the Passover a little bit, um, since that is kind of the day that kicks off the unleavened bread. It's a part of the, the same calendar week, uh, but it's not the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's actually the Passover feast. Now, some people say, oh no, the Passover was a whole week. No, it was not. <laughs> the Passover was one night. That's when the angels came and passed over the house that had the blood upon the door. Amen? And so that's why when you go to Acts chapter 12, verse number 4, when Herod is talking about Peter and when, when he's in prison and saying that after Easter, he was going to bring him before the people. That word Easter is the Greek word Pascha, the same word that we get Passover from. And by the way, the word Passover did not exist until we translated into the English language. All right? So the English language didn't have the word Passover until it translated Pascha. And that was done through William Tyndale. He was the first one to pen those words, Passover, because that's what it means, <laughs> amen, when the angels passed over. And so, so what happens is a lot of people say, because Herod said he intended after Passover to bring Peter to the people because he wanted to kill him just like he did James a few days before. But he didn't want to do it before Passover, before Easter. Now, why is it Pascha translated Easter in that particular situation? And this is where some people say, well, it's an error of the, the translators. <laughs> Duh. You're so smart. You could figure that out. These men, 55 of them, knew how many languages could read them <laughs> perfectly. Some of them wrote dictionaries by the time they were 10 years old. So we can sit here and say, oh, error. <laughs> Shows how really stupid we are. Folks, these men knew language and they knew what was going on here because Herod, that passage reveals to us before he said he intended after Easter, it says, these were the days of unleavened bread. Peter was arrested in the days of the unleavened bread. Now, what's first, Passover or the unleavened bread? Passover. Nisan 14, on the 15th, begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Peter was arrested after Passover. He was in the prison during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So, <clears throat> that word Pascha, you know, to this day in the Greek language... If you were to say, what, is, what do you call the celebration of the Christian resurrection? What word are they going to give you? Pascha. Because it was one and the same. It was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and the feasts and so forth. The Christians would call that resurrection Sunday Pascha. Because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Easter does not mean Astaroth. 
It's not a goddess that they worshipped at the spring festivals and so forth. In fact, if you look, the etymology of the word has nothing to do with Easter. That is just someone saying something because they're trying to attack it because they're against Christmas, they're against this. Against, hey, folks, I get it. Christ Mass. <laughs> Amen. Jesus probably wasn't born on the 25th. <laughs> so you could celebrate it. You don't have to celebrate it, whatever. You know what? You can celebrate Pascha or not celebrate it, whatever. But what I'm saying is, They knew in that first century that the Christians were celebrating the resurrection on the Sunday after the Passover during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And Herod said, there is no way I'm going to kill him before the resurrection, just like Jesus a few years back, and have them pretend that somehow Peter is going to raise from the dead. So he's going to wait till after the Christian Easter. To bring him before the people. You get that. Now why is that the right translation? Because if it's not, then one of two things. The King James translators translated Pascha, a word that means Passover, after a false god. And that's because they were just so stupid. They didn't know what the words meant. No. The trans- Ashtaroth was used throughout the Old Testament. They had translated it a thousand times. <laughs> Easter has nothing to do with Astaroth. Astarte. Amen. <laughs> it was the Christian holiday. Folks, if Jesus Christ were to raise on a Sunday morning, what would you do next year that time? You were born on what day? What do you do every day, every time of that year, the year after? You know why you do that? Well, so you don't forget how old you are, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Secondly is to remember. You know, Christians are notorious for having things like that. Church anniversaries and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's what we do. And you know what, from early on, you can say it's right or wrong. It's not really what we're talking about here. All we're talking about is that the Christians of that day would celebrate the Christian resurrection and it was called pascha the same that it's called today and it was called easter as it is called today and it's never nobody has ever thought that easter was a star day until hislop wrote his book on two babylons and now all of a sudden i got people coming to me and saying this is the wrong translation you know what they're saying there's an error in the bible That is the only solution for their particular position. And I'm sorry, I go with the Bible first. I always start with faith in Scripture, number one. That guides my steps. Amen? Astarte doesn't come out of Passover. (laughs) Astaroth does not come out of Passover. The King James translators knew what the word Easter meant. It's of Germanic origin, and it's Oster, which means dawn. And they would celebrate it every year in the Christian church until we got scared of these people thinking that it was Astaroth and that we stopped talking about Easter. And then they come back at us and say, oh, it's got an error in the King James Bible. I'm sorry, it's not. 
Easter is the proper word for that particular usage. Otherwise, Peter would have had to been kept in prison for a whole year till the next Passover to be brought before the people. And for sure, that's not what Herod was talking about. He wanted him dead now. He was just going to wait till after the Sunday. Amen? After the resurrection Sunday. And so, let me also tell you this. Easter is different than Christmas. I'll tell you why. Because Easter always associates with the Hebrew calendar in relation to the Passover and the unleavened bread. It can be known every year exactly calendar date that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Christmas, not so much. <laughs> Amen. What people are trying to do is bring Christmas and Easter on the same error playing field. And they're not. I give, I'll give you Christmas. It didn't happen on the 25th. And if it did, well, if he can tell me that one day. It really doesn't matter to me. <laughs> you know? To me, it's just some, simply a time that you celebrate his birth. You know, without Santa Claus and elves and all those things, right? But Easter is a reality. <laughs> That's something that is based on a real event that took place at that time, at the time of the Hebrew calendar. And if we wanted to, we could be very specific every year and actually celebrate it on the exact day that it says according to the Hebrew calendar, but we don't. We just go by a yearly thing that we have chosen. Which, it doesn't really matter. Why? Because all those things are shadows of things to come, and Christ is the body. Amen? All I'm saying is, our scripture does not have error. You get what I'm saying there? (laughs) And so, but if you start saying, oh, the Passover week. Well, there is no Passover week. There's a Passover feast on the 14th of Nisan, And then there is a Feast of the Eleven Bread starting on the 15th with the High Sabbath. Went on for one week until Wednesday of the next week. And that was another High Sabbath that finished off that particular feast. And then they could bring the yeast back in the house. (laughs) All right. Make sense? (laughs) All right. Good. And so, now let's move on here. You say, well, I don't agree with you, preacher. That's okay, but that's our position, so you can be quiet. All right. (laughs) I'm serious. I don't want anybody correcting no Bible in this church. God never called you to do that. Now, if anybody has been called to correct the Bible, it's probably the pastor, and I've not been called. I've been called to say, thus saith the Lord, not yea hath God said. So when I hear people correcting, that's what really got my goat this year. I had someone use me and the lack of using the word Easter to verify the fact that I believe that there's an error in the King James Bible. So you know what I made a decision that day? Next year, we got Easter. <laughs> Painted all over the place. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> We're looking at now the Passover. My goodness, 8 o'clock. <laughs> a new beginning. A new beginning. The month of the Passover became the beginning of the new year, reminding us that life truly begins with salvation. Exodus 12.2, this month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of year to you. So this is the first time it happened. When they left Egypt, that first Passover became a new year for Israel. Before that, that was not their new year. 
but the Passover made it the new year, and that's referring to how we in our salvation, that's the new beginning for your life. Amen? Galatians 6.15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 to 18. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Um, We're going to move on. Number two, a saving sacrifice. So it was instituted to remind Israel of how the Lord passed over their homes because of the blood of the Lamb, delivering them from death. And so Exodus 12, verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it at a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. So really, the first Passover was the only one done in Egypt. After that, they were only done in memorial from that point on. But this one, the blood meant something. (laughs) They didn't have that blood on the door. That angel was going to kill their firstborn son. Amen. So it's talking about salvation. Hebrews 11 verse 28, Moses talks about him. It says, through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. You know, he was the firstborn, wasn't he? Exodus 12, 20, no, he wasn't, Miriam was, but he was the firstborn son. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? Then ye shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our, our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. Amen. So that's what the Passover was. Number three, it was a true sacrifice. So Jesus became the final Passover lamb for the sin of mankind. And so he is the true sacrifice. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Amen. So now he has become our sacrifice. So there you have a New Testament revelation of an Old Testament type that Jesus Christ is our final Passover, our Passover lamb. Uh, Number four, the perfect sacrifice. The Passover lamb was to be unblemished. It says in verse 15 of chapter 12, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. He shall take it out from the sheep and from the goats. And in fact, they would set it apart for three days. That sounds familiar, amen? And Jesus Christ was set apart to the world for three years. You know, from the time he started serving uh, and walking through the land, it's amazing, by the end, they couldn't even come up with an accusation to put above his head on that cross. There was nothing. It's not even like jaywalking. (laughs) There was nothing they could find against Jesus Christ when they wanted to put an accusation above his head. You had the guy next to him, thief. The guy next to him, murderer. But above Jesus, king of the Jews. That's all we can come up with. That's what they were telling me. They're saying, hey, blasphemy. He's making himself a king over Caesar. That's the only accusation. (laughs) Even Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. And you think you'd be able to find something. You couldn't find a thing. 
Nothing wrong with Jesus. He was a perfect sacrifice. They, they looked at him. They flipped him around. They looked for any blemish on that lamb and they could find no blemish on Christ. Amen. 1 Peter 1.18 For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So there you have that New Testament revelation once again of Old Testament typology. Number five, you have a suffering sacrifice. And notice in verse 8 of Exodus 12, it says, And they shall eat the flesh, and that night roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Bitter herbs speaks of the suffering of Christ for sins. It reminds, of the, reminds us of the bitterness of sin and the great need to take them away. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Number six, you have a complete sacrifice. In Exodus 12, verse 9, it says, Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. In other words, the Lord saying, I want you to typify a complete judgment upon that lamb and fire it wasn't allowed to be roasted uh, or it wasn't allowed to be boiled in water it wasn't uh, allowed to be cooked any other way he said had to be cooked in fire and fire is a picture of judgment and that's what jesus did for us amen hebrews 10 12 but this man after he had offered once sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of god and number seven a submissive sacrifice. It says in verse 46 of chapter 12, In one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry forth out of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. That's interesting because in John 19, the soldiers came, then came the soldiers, and, and break the legs of the first, the thief, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Say they would break his legs because then they wouldn't be able to lift themselves up to breathe. They would automatically suffocate. So if they were living at the time where they were going to take him off the cross, they would break the legs, and that way they, there were so much strain on them, they couldn't catch any breath, and they would suffocate for their final minutes of life. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Why is that? Because Jesus wasn't fighting for his life. You know, the people can fight for their lives. You know, even people in the hospital sometimes when they're dying, you know, a lot of the longevity of how much long they're in there is because they will not let go. Have you ever seen that with family, different people? Jesus let go. He completely let go. <laughs> that was a submissive lamb. Amen. And it's interesting because the soldiers were commanded to break the legs of the people on the cross. Why didn't they break his legs? Way back in Exodus chapter 12, God said, you shall not break a bone thereof. Isn't it amazing that thousands of years later, this Roman soldier given this command to go break the legs of all those that are crucified goes to Jesus, sees that he's dead, takes his hammer, I'm not breaking his legs. 
But he did thrust the spear in the side. See, that's something they were commanded not to do. They were commanded not to do something like that. So they were commanded not to put the sword in the side. They were commanded to break the legs. Two disobedient things by this soldier, and both of them fulfilled Scripture. <laughs> that's kind of interesting. Amen? 1 John 3.16, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So how much should you be fighting for your life? (laughs) Would we still be hanging there fighting at 6 p.m. before the high Sabbath? Are we still fighting for our lives here as Christians? (laughs) Would they break our legs? That's why our legs are being broken a lot in our Christian lives. The Lord wants us to suffocate and die to ourselves. That's the the association we get here. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives.